Well, good morning, church. It is good for us to be together on the Lord's Day to worship our Lord who saved us uh, from every nation as we've just sung together. We're continuing this morning. We're back in the book of Acts after a bit of a break. And so we're, we're picking up where we left off uh, last time. Last time we left off in chapter 8, verse 3. And so today we'll pick it up from verse 4. Uh, Before I read the text, let me just uh, say to the children uh, that the word for this morning's sermon is the word steadfast. The word steadfast. And if you you got one of these sheets, if you didn't, someone, you go outside to the stewards, they'll get it for you. But if you're 3 to 12, there's a sheet for you, you can work through it, uh, count the word steadfast. And if you're a bit older, perhaps 8, 9, 10, you can uh, ask, answer those questions that are there in the sheet uh, for you. And I'm told the, the Sunday school team is telling me that there are prizes for you if you do this. So if you do this, then you'll find that lady over there in the corner, Dineo, and uh, another young man outside, Benji. Just look for them um, and, or just ask the stewards and they'll point you to them. And I understand there's a prize for you if you can show them your work. Now, if you don't get a prize, remember, it's not me. It's, it's them. Um, no, but it is good to, um, to have children in the service with us, following along in the message with us as well. Come with me now. Uh, I will read from verse 1, just a bit of, to refresh us here in chapter 8 to where we left, left off last week. And Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And here's our text. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who heard who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is God's word. There's a question, church, for us this morning. How do we live as a church in times of uncertainty and upheaval? And trial. This is a question for us as a church, not so much us as individuals, but us as a church. How do we live? Better yet, a question, the, the question can be asked this way What is it that we want to have as our main objective as a church in times of uncertainty? That is, this is the question that is partially answered in the text in front of us this morning. The text is concerned with the activities of the persecuted church after they were persecuted out of Jerusalem. And not just, they weren't just persecuted, but they were displaced. They were scattered abroad 
They were refugeed, as it were. They were made to leave their homes. Throughout history, of course, there has been a number of displaced peoples across borders as long as there have been wars. Uh, There have been displaced people, asylum seekers, refugees, as long as there have been war, conflict, persecution, and political instability. This is something that is normal um, in the world. According, for example, to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, at the end of 2019, there were 79.5 million people worldwide who have forcibly been forced to feed their homes. And uh, not just that there's so many people, there's this issue of people being forced out of their homes and forced out of where they come from, but there are well-documented traumatic effects from that. And those traumatic effects are far-reaching. To have to, to leave your home, to leave your support system, your sense of belonging and stable livelihood because of running for your life is not a small thing. Yeah? Sure we can say that. And there have been many studies that have attempted to document the effects on people who have been displaced. And, the, and what the studies show is that it is horrible what happens to those people. Children live with constant and unabated nightmares. Even after they've settled into a, a new stable location. Hopelessness in these people, the hopelessness of their situation leads to substance abuse as people attempt to forget their troubles, even for a moment. People enter into marriages hastily, and even child marriages, as a way to secure their futures. But the picture, while you and I might think is gloomy, and is and rightfully so, it is gloomy, it is sad, if you think about somebody coming, forcing you to leave your home, leave your country, to go somewhere else just to, to save your own skin, While that picture is gloomy, it is not only gloomy in terms of its effects on the people. Many refugees enter into new countries and thrive. Many refugees see opportunities in their new places and they take them. They they innovate. Some create new goods and services for the new lands that they have come into. This is quite the history, especially we saw this after the Second World War. The Jews that were displaced across the world during that time, they got into new areas, and a lot of the times, they created new massive companies, new massive law firms, wherever they went. You see, they, while being forcibly moved from your home and your own area of sanctity is a catastrophic occurrence, there are some people among that milieu who take the bull by the horns, as it were, and thrive. The church in front of us this morning finds itself in a displaced position. Life has taken a turn for the worse. They have been dragged from their homes, dragged and ravaged by Saul. The thriving picture of the church that was happening from chapter 2 to chapter 7 is now a long-distant memory. Do you remember how wonderful the descriptions were of the life of the church from chapters 2 to chapter 7? They were growing. They were sharing with one another. Nobody had need. Everybody's need was supplied because the church was helping one another. They were having wonderful times. And even in chapter 6 we saw that even some of the priests were converting. And so there was even some elite members of this small community. 
But all of that now is gone. Stephen preached. You know Stephen's a rebel rouser. He could have just left things to be. He could have just kept things quiet. And this wonderful time that they were having could have been continuing. But no, he had to open his mouth, didn't he? Well, he had to. He had to preach. And after Stephen preached and, 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 and brought down the fear of God on the Israelites, they killed him and Saul became the agent of ravaging and trying to remove from the face of the earth this church. And now this church, these people, we're told here they're scattered except for the twelve, the, the apostles. But the rest of them, they're now scattered aboard trying to find a place to live. Let's take a moment to appreciate what we're reading here. This is the first century Middle East. There is no UN. There is no asylum seekers treaty between countries. Under the Roman Empire, for these largely non-Roman citizens, there aren't any social safety nets. There's no 350 rand grant that that can be given to you because you're now out of a job. If you leave your house and you leave your possessions and your land, you generally have to find a new place first that's safe and start all over again. There is nothing easy. There's only trial in what we're seeing here. They don't have a place, as it were even, to turn for help. But look at what this church does in the midst of their trial. In the midst of traveling with crying babies. In the midst of deciding where it is safe to settle. Luke tells us this one summary of how, what is it that they were doing. The one main summary of their actions while they were scattered. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Wait a second. They went about preaching the very same word that's causing them to not have their own homes anymore. They went about proclaiming the very same thing that has gotten them kicked out from where their investments and savings are. Yes. They went about preaching that very same word. Luke, in the grand scheme of things, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this. I'm sure they were suffering as they're going about trying to find a place to stay. As they're trying to figure out how to consider life now. I'm sure there were sufferings. I'm sure there were lots of complications. But Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, sees it fit to just say this one line about them and then build on that line. They went about preaching the word. Let us pause here for a moment and think for a moment together. What are the temptations that come to you and I in moments when we feel scattered? What are the temptations that come to us in moments of trial, in moments of being hard-pressed, when you feel like you're alone and you have to carry your own burden on your own on this journey that you're walking on? When you feel like home is no longer home, it is now not safe. Times of trial, times of even our own heart's displacement, when we feel that the world around us is against us. The situations that are happening are against us. What are we tempted to do in those moments? What are the temptations for the Christian who is scattered or who is feeling scattered, who is feeling under trial? When we feel unsettled, 
The place to go for for us to see this and to discuss it further is the book of James. James wrote his letter to Christians who were scattered across the place. And they were scattered under severe varying trials. They all had different trials that they were dealing with. And so they were feeling those trials. And James has a number of things to say to them. Hold your place in Acts and come with me for a moment to James chapter 1. I want to show you how James deals with at least two temptations. There are at least two temptations that come to us in moments when we feel ourselves scattered. There are two temptations, I guarantee you, that were felt by this church as they're traveling, running away from Jerusalem, traveling, trying to find a place to settle. Here's the first temptation. Look at verses 2 to 4 of James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you know what the first temptation is? When there is a trial that scatters you, when there is a trial, there is a hardship, and you feel hard-pressed. Do you know what the first temptation is? To lose perspective. To lose perspective. James says you must count it all joy. You must have the right perspective regarding what is happening to you. Lose perspective. Once you are in this particular trial and you're you're focused on this problem that you have, you can easily lose the forest for this one tree. Have you heard the story of the shoe manufacturer who sent two salesmen to a remote village to see if he can sell that village some shoes? sent two salesmen. The one salesman texted him back and said, there's no prospects here because nobody here wears shoes. The other salesman reported enthusiastically, the market potential here is terrific. Everybody's barefooted. We can sell them shoes. Do you see the perspective? The one guy is saying, no shoes, nobody wears shoes, what's the point? The other guy is saying, this is, this is great. Let me show you shoes. See, my friend, friends, challenges often bring with them a, te- a temptation towards an excessive despondency. But James calls for an attitude of joy because we know that this trial is doing something to us. This trial is working something in us. This trial is not just something that's out there just happening. It is performing a work, a work that I pray for. That's what he's saying. James here, of course, you have have to understand what James is not saying. James is not saying here that there is no time for grief, that there is no time for sorrow. Certainly not. That's not what he's saying. He's not expecting us to be machines. But he does encourage us to see, to open our eyes and see our trials for the opportunities that they are. They are opportunities, he says here, for growth in steadfastness. You and I pray, as believers, we pray to be steadfast. We pray to be like Christ. We pray to stand firm. We pray for growth. We pray for perfection. And then God brings us trials as a means by which that steadfastness is built in us. Hence why 
you cannot now count it as a misery. You can't now have the thing that's bringing you what you've been praying for counted as a misery. Well, here's somebody who's been praying to have a child. They've prayed to the Lord for five years, praying to have a child. Lord, please give me the child. Lord, please bless me. I want a child. And then, by God's grace, pregnancy comes. But you know what the pregnancy comes with? Morning sickness. Do you know what the pregnancy comes with? Back pain. I haven't experienced this, but I've seen it. <laughs> okay. I can see some of you looking at me suspect. How do you know? No, I've seen it. <laughs> you know, I'm married to a woman. It comes with a whole host of things. And then you can now look at all these things as you're... The, the prayers that you've asked for, they're coming with these challenges. And now you're complaining to God, counting it as a misery. Woe is me, when in fact, blessed is you. Blessed is your womb, but it comes with these pains. The church from Jerusalem here, scattered across Judea and Samaria as she is, looking for a new home as she is, she goes about preaching the word. This church does not see the threat to their lives being so big as to remove the obligation on them to proclaim the word concerning Jesus Christ. See, this reminds us of what happened in chapter 5. Do you remember in chapter 5 that Peter and John were threatened and beaten? Right? And they came out rejoicing. Do you remember this? We saw this together. Peter and John were, were, were threatened and then they were beaten, lashes, grown men being lashed in public. And they picked themselves up, limping as they were, and said, praise be to God, because we are worthy to be counted, we are counted worthy to suffer for this name. My challenge to us is that we ought to aim we ought to aim for the same attitude Christ is worth it our trials our own internal displacements the feelings that come to us of not belonging in this world all of those must not take away from us the reality that Christ is precious and he's worthy of proclamation even here as we sojourn Christ is precious and he's worthy of obedience even here while we are suffering but how do we do that? How do we rejoice? How do we count? How do we rejoice, have a joyful heart with all the challenges of life, with all the disappointments of life, with all those feelings of feeling alone as if no one is our advocate? How can we do that? James says, consider it all joy. Count it all joy. This moment does not present itself as a joyous moment, but our hearts and minds must be made by us to consider that joy is being brought by this situation. That's hard. Okay, we can say amen, but listen, that's hard. You with me? It's very hard. To teach your heart the truth, to teach it, to say, no, don't respond like that. No. My soul, why are you cast down within me? I shall again praise God. Hope in Him. That takes, that takes a lot of work. Takes a lot of being aware. Takes a lot of perspective. A clarity of mind. 
and in the management of my own emotions. This is not an easy task, but it is a task that we've been called to because Christ is precious. You must understand, dear saint, and perhaps, I need, maybe I might have to say it this way. You must understand that when he says, count it all joy, consider it all joy, what he's saying is, ensure that your heart does not run amok. You see, your heart must be guarded. From your heart flows life, Proverbs tells us. If you leave your heart and your heart meditations without any kind of control and any kind of guard, you will find yourself in a place that you never wanted to be in. If you just allow your heart to feel as it wants to feel, allow your heart to meditate as it wants to meditate, allow your heart to just go through these rabbit trails and these ideas as it wants to do, you will find yourself thinking things that are horrific. You'll find yourself saying things that are horrific. You'll say things and you wonder, how in the world did I get here? It's because you were allowing your heart to dictate the terms of your Christianity. Not your Christianity dictates the emotions of your heart. James says we must consider it all joy. It is hard. But we must, have, we must periodically say to ourselves, no, this is not a whole moment of hopelessness. No, in my struggle, this is not a matter of a moment of utter despair. No, this is a joyous moment. Hard as it is, this is a moment that is producing in me something that I want. That's the first thing. That's the first temptation that comes to us when we're in those times. Here's the second temptation. We find it in verse 12. Look at verse 12 of James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed, happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Happy is the man or the woman who when the trial comes, attempting to break her, she stands. Happy is the person who does not make shipwreck of their faith when the trial comes. Happy is the person who, when the challenge comes, does not throw out their identity and act like a fool. Does not speak like they wouldn't normally speak. Does not think what they normally wouldn't think. Happy is the person who, when the trial comes, whatever the trial comes, this person is going to stand and act within the bounds that Christ has given to them. That's the happy person. That's the blessed person. Why are they blessed? Because they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to every single person who loves them. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus prophesied to the 120 in chapter 1? He said to them that there will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But much more than a prophecy, that was a charge. This is what you will do. Whatever comes, whatever is happening, this is what your job is, church. Your task is to witness about me. Are you you seeing this? Your job, your, your steadfastness is this. Witness about me. Tell others about me. 
Tell others about my works. Tell them about my resurrection. And so now, for the church that was in Jerusalem, that is now being scattered, it is their task to remain steadfast even in the midst of this hardship. It is a duty for them to witness to Christ, and there is a blessing in performing that duty even under the added stress of trial. Here are two Christians. They both have the same duties. The one Christian has this They both have the exact same job. Love Christ, love man. And this one is living in relative ease. This one is living here, perhaps you know, in, a, in a place where there's no problems like this. And they are able to do what they're called to do. They're able to go to church without any problems. They're still called to do it, but they do it with relative ease. Do you know what that person's reward will be? Crown of life. If they remain steadfast, even in the relative ease, they still have the job to do, and they still have to do it. And if they do it, God will give them the crown of life. Here's the other Christian. Have the same job, has the same job as this one. But man, they have it rough. They don't have it easy. While they're doing their job, there's all these other challenges. While they have to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, there's this added stress on top of them. They have one more thing to think about. But that one more thing to think about, that added stress, that added trial, does not remove from them the obligation to remain steadfast. That added trial does not give them a holiday from obedience. That added stress just means that they really need to hold on and they need to grab a hold of another one of God's promises and and really work within that trial but they still must remain steadfast. See, and here's the wonderful thing. The wonderful thing is that both of them will be given the crown of life. Both of them will be rewarded well for remaining steadfast in the midst of whatever was going on. Now, conversely, think about this. There is a bitterness that can build when I feel like my load is harder and my fellow Christian's load is not. There is a bitterness that can build. Hey, do you remember the, 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 the parable of the workers in the vineyard? Some, the, the master hires these people and says, come and work on my field. And then, and then they come in and then he says, okay, I'm going to pay you 500 rand. You work full day from from six to six to uh, from uh, six in the morning till uh, four p.m. You walk you work that time. I'll give you five hundred rand. Oh yes, thank you. I'm very happy. And then another guy comes in and joins at eleven a.m. This guy started at six. This guy comes in at eleven a.m. And then he's told the same thing. If you work from now until four, I'll give you five hundred rand. And then at three p.m. another comes in. If you work for this one hour, one hour, keep it together for one hour, I will give you 500 rand. And then, five, four o'clock comes, and the guy who came in first is seeing these people being given 500 rand. The, one, the, the three o'clock guy, 500 rand. Ha! Huh. The 12, 12, 12 p.m. guy, 500 rand. Come on! 11 a.m. 500 rand guy. Okay, surely what's coming to me has to be big. I mean, I started earlier. I was sweating. Those guys even joined. They joined the, the, the lanes that I had started. Surely what's coming to me is bigger. 
And Jesus says, you're going to be given 500 rand. Because that's what we was, was agreed. And then this guy is full of bitterness. Ah, Ibo, how come? No. The master is generous. And while we all have different loads, while we, we all have different loads, we all have the same job. Remember, imagine the thief on the cross. That guy had lived 99.999999% of his life hating God, sinning. Even while Jesus was there, he was there mocking him. And then there was a moment where everything changed. A moment where everything changed. And then he saw him as the king that he is. And he said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for decades. You will not be any better off than that thief on the cross. You see, because the master is generous. But we all must just carry on our loads. Not looking this way or that. Carry our load. Just carry your load. Under the trial that it comes with, under the scattering that comes with it, carry your load. Trust the Lord. Be faithful in that load and the Lord will reward you. The Lord will reward those who remain steadfast under trial, who stick to what they're supposed to be sticking to while they are under trial. Now I want you to, and and this helps us also think about this. This is not to say that we ought to now look forward to hardship so we can prove ourselves in the midst of them. Okay? Some people take this theology and then say, well, it means that we should be always looking for hardship. Well, no. Not at all. You heard us just this morning. We're praying for our government. Why are we praying for our government every week? Because 1 Timothy 2 tells us that we must pray for our government. To what end? So that we might live in peace and have lives that are dignified. The reason we pray for the government every week is not, so much, not because we think they're so amazing. Or it's not because we think that they're so horrible. It's because we've been commanded that we, if we pray for them, pray so that we could live in peace. We could live a dignified life. So it's not such that we have to search out, government, search out hardships. But rather, whether hardships or no, remain steadfast. Remain keeping to do what you must be doing, you as an individual, but also us as a church. And this is where it happens. These temptations, these two temptations, lack of perspective and a, a capitulation under trial. These two can also happen to you as an individual, but they can also happen to us as a church. We could now start as a church because of the stress that we're under. We could start losing perspective and start preaching other messages. Start making other things more important. Change the message just a little bit to fit the times. No. Our job is to remain steadfast, meaning we, as a church, proclaim one thing. The man Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Beginning, middle and end. No more sophistication, no less than that sophistication. The man Jesus Christ is our message. But also we individually as well. We must ensure that we do not lose perspective in the midst of the trials that we go through. Start thinking in our minds now, the message has to change. The the things that are important must change now based on where I'm at. No. The message is the same. The steadfastness that we're called to is the same steadfastness that they were called to. 
to remain steadfast under trial. Well, that's the, that's the church scattered. That's the situation of the church scattered, and those are the temptations. And may we pray and ask the Lord that He would keep us from these temptations, that we would not capitulate under trial, and that we would not lose perspective. But now, that's the church in general. Now Luke is going to turn his attention to the ministry of one specific person who was scattered, and that is Philip. Look at verse 5 with me. Come back to Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 5. We're going to spend a number of weeks with, with Philip. He becomes now the, the next major figure in the narrative. And here's the first thing. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or or who were lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The Samaritans were Hebrews who were inhabitants of the northern kingdom of Israel. Between the the populations of Judea and Samaria, there was a long-standing divide. And this divide is largely seen when the the one nation became two kingdoms after the death of Solomon. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 12. F.F. Bruce notes that while there there were many attempts at bridging this divide between the Samaritans and the people of Judea, especially after the exile, this divide between these two people widened. And one of the things that widened this divide was because the Jews returned from exile to rebuild their temple and they were opposed by the Samaritans. And then there was further ill will between these two people. And so because they couldn't even stand each other, the Samaritans established as a center of worship Uh, their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And they were going around claiming that that's where Moses had originally intended for the Israelites to worship. And they also had their own unique uh, version of the five books written by Moses, the Pentateuch. And they rejected the prophets. They rejected all the prophets and they rejected the Jewish traditions. The Samaritans that Philip is now sent to saw themselves as the true descendants of Israel and preservers of the true religion while considering the Jerusalem temple and the Levitical priesthood illegitimate, which was clearly wrong. The Levitical priesthood was legitimate. And so because they were wrong and they were also intermixing with other nations and they were committing many sins, God repeatedly judged them. God repeatedly showed them that they were sinners. The the temple that they built on Mount Gerizim was destroyed by John the Hasmonean about a hundred years before the time of Christ. So even the temple that they set up for themselves, God destroyed, showing them that they are in the wrong. And while they, they don't have a temple and they are living under Roman rule, we must remember something that we might easily forget when we know the history of the Samaritans. We must remember that these Samaritans were also children of Abraham. And not only were they children of Abraham, but they were also children of Jacob. The main complaint by the Jews about them is that they were too intermixed with foreign nations and they had very evil practices, and that is true. If you trace the the histories of the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the Sumerian kingdom, was the most rebellious. The, The northern kingdom produced a litany of evil kings and evil practices. 
It is the northern kingdom that gave us Ahab. It is the northern kingdom that gave us Jezebel and had the perpetual worship of Baal. Whenever you see an evil king in Israel, he is most likely from the northern kingdom, from the Samaritans. The northern kingdom was polluted so much that even when Jesus arrived, he proclaimed to the Samaritan this. He said this to the Samaritan in John chapter 4. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. You see, the Samaritans, this people, they were the black sheep of the family, but they're still a part of the family. They were the black sheep throughout their history. All, all, they, all they did was sin against God. All they did was perpetually do their own things, set up their own temples, worship God in high places when He doesn't want to. They, they make altars everywhere, and then they mix all kinds of religions together with the worship of God. They were a completely vile nation, a completely vile child, as it were. And you know what the challenge? Here's the challenge. Here's the, here's, the, here's the challenge. Here's what I want to bring to you. The challenge is this. God had made promises to them just as he had made promises to the Jews. God had promised them through Moses a prophet, a Messiah that will come and restore everything. So, what must God do? This, with this rebellious child that's continually, consistently doing its own thing over and over again, making unclean practice, inventing evil all the time. What will God do? Especially now when the Lord Jesus Christ arrives. What, what, what will He do? Will He forsake them? Will you judge God if He forsakes them? Surely you wouldn't. They don't like to listen to Him. They don't love Him. They do their own things. They even have their own altered version of his word. Why would he come to them and even care for them? But some of them, some of these rebellious people, some, some there was a remnant from this group of people that was awaiting the Messiah. They knew that God had promised a Messiah and they were holding on to that hope. In John chapter 4, you remember when the Lord Jesus revealed himself to be the Messiah to the Samaritan woman. Do you remember what she said when she ran back into the city? She said, I've met the prophet who's told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And, they, and then we're told in John 4 that many heard Christ to such a degree that they said, no, stay, sleep over two nights. Just give us two more, stay with us two more days and tell us more of the word. And then they reported to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you say. We now heard the word from this man himself and we truly believe he is the Messiah. There were people, even from that milieu of sin, even from that milieu of rebellion, there were people within that nation that were holding on to this hope of the Messiah. And God was not about now to disappoint them. God now is not going to do what you and I would do. What would you and I do with this rebellious child? Years and years and years and years of being not listened to. Our hearts would check out. But what does God do here? Instead, from within the towns of the Samaritans, He calls a people to Himself. 
It is in this backdrop that we are able to see the importance of Philip's ministry to the Samaritans. Luke is going to spend much time with Philip in Samaria, and this is why. These people were promised by God a deliverer, and their faithlessness has not nullified God's promise. And here, through Philip's ministry, God does not disappoint. But I want you to notice, what is it that Philip goes there and proclaims? I want you to notice the phraseology that Luke uses regarding what exactly did Philip proclaim to the Samaritans? Did he tell them that they need to go back to the ways of the Jews? Did he tell them about the temple? What did he proclaim? That's the wrong question, isn't it? It's not what, it's who. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Note the use of language that defines the ministry of Philip in Samaria. Luke does not say he proclaimed to them the kingdom of heaven, though that would be true. He did not say that he proclaimed to them the forgiveness of sins, though that would be true. Rather, the sum total of Philip's proclamation to these Samaritans is this, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. The deliverer that you guys have been waiting for has arrived. He proclaimed Jesus. He described Jesus. He described what Jesus said. He described Jesus' ministry. He described and painted a picture to the people of the death and resurrection of this Jesus. To them, he's saying this, all of your waiting... All of your suffering is now at an end because the Messiah is here. The one who brings an end to all of it, that is the, the one who is the, the yes and amen of God's promises, that one has now arrived. Christ came and by calling on his name, even you evil Samaritans, you will have life eternal. You can have forgiveness of sins. All of the expectation that you have finds its fulfillment now no longer in a concept, in an idea, in a futuristic hope. It now finds its fulfillment in this man, the man Jesus Christ. I want to draw two implications from this. First, at the end of the day, the Lord Jesus Christ is the message. When we ask people to turn from their sins, we don't leave it there. We tell people, come, turn to Jesus. How many of you have heard countless Christless sermons where it's all about what you must do and how you must act? Where it's all about appreciating the text in its context, but no Christ? Believe this, dear person, in front of me this morning. You will find all the benefits you seek if you study Christ. He is the hope. He is the one who is to be proclaimed. Like Jonathan Edwards said, there's no such thing as self-control when it comes to feasting on Christ. There is no gluttony when it comes to Christ. You can't study Him enough. You can't have too much of Him. You can't see too much in Him that is worth loving. Christ is the message. There is no getting full of Christ. Like we heard last week, Jesus indeed is the centerpiece of all the blessings that we seek. Let me ask you this. What do you seek? What is it that you're after? See, the Samaritans, had, some of the Samaritans at least, 
were waiting, hoping for the Messiah, hoping for the Restorer, the Deliverer. And some, of course, weren't. What, what, what are you seeking? What are you holding out hope for? What is it that for you is the, the promised land? The thing that if it just arrives, if you just have it, that's it for you. You've got what you're looking for. Do you seek rest? You can find it in Christ. Do you seek meaning? You can find it in Christ. Do you seek understanding and wisdom? You can find it in Christ. We do not proclaim, dear friends, listen to me. We do not proclaim strategies and solutions. We do not proclaim self-help. We do not proclaim things that are on the side. We proclaim this person and in him we find all we need. This is why, my friends, it is absolutely impossible to not despise, to not hate with a passion the motivational speeches that disguise themselves as sermons in the pulpits around our country even this morning. Motivation will give you something for a few seconds. It does not last. It does not give you something that is real. It does not give you life. I can get you motivated. But it will only last two seconds after. Motivation wanes. What we need is the Christ. That was proclaimed by Philip. Who brings, this Christ brings with him streams of living water. That bubble into eternity. Oh man, my friends, if the amount of things in my life I would have in order if all I needed was motivation. If motivation was such a useful tool, the amount of things that I would have in order. We don't need motivation, we need Christ. But it's not only what you seek. You see... Just like some of the Samaritans were not waiting for this promised Messiah, it is possible that you here are busy thinking and seeking other things. You see, you might be here this morning seeking the wrong things and are entirely unaware that you need to be seeking life, eternal life that is found in the Christ. Perhaps the problem with your life is not the answer, it's the question. You're asking the wrong questions. You're wanting the wrong things. That is why you're not seeing the answer in Christ. Perhaps it is possible that you are here and you're looking for the crown of the 60s. Sex, drugs and money. Perhaps you're here. That's what you want. It's really what you you really desire in your heart. Sex, drugs and money. You want to be validated as an attractive specimen of humanity. You want the other pieces of humanity to to validate you as an attractive, wonderful specimen that is irresistible. You want substances or even experiences that give you a high, that, 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 that take you to a place of emotional dissipation. Or perhaps you're here seeking money and the power that it brings. If you seek these things, let me tell you very clearly, seek them not. You're looking, for the, you're looking for the wrong thing. You're asking the wrong question. What you need is life. And that life is found in the Christ. What you need is forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins is found in the Christ. What you need is rest. Eternal rest. And that rest 
from your labors and your toils is found in the person and finished work of the Christ. My dear friends, stop asking the wrong questions. Stop looking for the wrong things. Look for Christ and you'll find even way more than what you were looking for in Him. That's the first implication. The second implication is this. We need to draw from this particular text the fact that the gospel, the Messiah, was proclaimed to the Samaritans by Philip. We need to draw this wonderful, important implication. God is faithful. God is extremely faithful. God is faithful even beyond what you do. He is so faithful, He will go against you to remain faithful to you. Even when you say you don't want Him, because He said, I will give myself to you, He will do it. God is faithful. You would expect Him to be done with these people, such that when He brings His Messiah, He would forget them, but He doesn't. Instead, He mentions them by name. He says to His disciples, make sure that when you do this task that I've given you, you do not leave out the Samaritans. Yes, they're rebellious. Yes, they're evil. Yes, they've done all these things. I, I've told them a number of times how much I despise them and their works. But I've promised them a deliverer. Make sure that on your way to telling the world about this message, tell them as the Samaritans as well. Because I made a promise to them. Listen to these words from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. Even if you have been faithless, dear friend, have you been faithless? Have you wandered and squandered like the prodigal son wandered and squandered whatever it is that God gave you? Even if you are faithless, Christ is today being proclaimed to you. Do you see the mercy of God? The Messiah is available to you. He is calling. Have you messed it up? Have you really just make a muck of things? Completely sort mess things up. It seems like there's no way back. Let me tell you, the Christ is being proclaimed to you. There is still hope. There is still hope. There is still hope because the Messiah is being proclaimed to you even to this day. Repent while it is today and grab a hold of Him. Well, real quick as we come to a close. Philip has arrived proclaiming the Messiah. And here now what happens after he proclaims the Messiah? Look at verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. When he comes to proclaim Christ, what happens? The people listen to him. Why do the people listen to him? Look there at verse 7. Because of the many signs and miracles he was performing. Now we've already said it before in this series in Acts, and I suppose it bears repeating for anybody who wasn't here before. The signs and wonders were an announcement tool by God to show that his message has arrived. If you want a fuller treatment of that, please go uh, to the previous messages, particularly there's a message that we did in Acts chapter 5 when we explained and looked at the purpose and the usefulness of the signs and wonders. I'm not going to repeat all of what I said there, but I'll just refer you to that 
particular message. But let me just add this regarding them hearing him and then them listening to him with these signs. The signs and wonders now have a new dimension. See, before we talked about how they are a sign, an announcement of God's, of, of God's kingdom arriving. But now, from now on, and especially in chapter 10, and further on, as we see more signs, they now have a new dimension to them, which we'll, we'll explain more in chapter 10. But let me just leave you with it. They have a new dimension to them. And here's the new dimension, the new meaning in the signs. This is what it is. That these new groups that are getting the gospel share in the same benefits as the Jews. See, the gospel did not only arrive with power to the Jews. It also arrived with power to who? To the Samaritans. And to the Gentiles, as we'll see in chapter 10 and going forward. So what's the point? The point is this. He's confirming this message that the kingdom of heaven is here and now everybody where there was a wall of hostility between Jew and Samaritan there's now one house where there was a wall of hostility between Jew, Samaritan and Gentile there is now one house because the same signs are done throughout the three places may we have may we remember this remember the benefits we have in Christ and remember what Christ does for us That Christ calls us to himself, calls us to remain steadfast, even as he works out salvation for us. Do not forget that while you come to Christ and get forgiveness of sins, while you come to Christ and get these wonderful blessings, some of them that we heard last week, remember this, you come to Christ and you are called to steadfastness. May God help us to remain steadfast under trial and to continue preaching when the same message that we have to preach all the time, that Christ Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pray.